They think all those sexual violence that they're subjecting Uyghur women to, this mysterious drug that they're giving, forced sterilization, collective punishment through gang rape, are the method that they're liberating the Uyghur woman. I mean, just let that think in. Today I sit down with Uyghur-American human rights advocate Nuri Turkel, vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. What kind of nation can exist when you target and destroy their children and women? Nuri Turkel was born in a Chinese re-education camp. His new book is titled No Escape, The True Story of China's Genocide of the Uyghurs. It's a chilling look into China's techno-autocracy and what can result when a communist regime is allowed to run unchecked for decades. And the Chinese, as you know, spend more money on domestic security than national defense. Why would you do that? Why are you fearful of your own population? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377 or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Nuri Turkel, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me on. Nuri, I just finished reading your book, your memoir. It's beautifully done. Thank so you very I'm gonna, much. I'll, that I'll means say a lot it right out to, to everyone. Thank you. Um, I want to start actually where you start in the book because you uh, bring the readers in really quickly with this example of a man who's being interrogated in a ch- tiger chair. Uh, maybe you can tell me what that is in a moment. But and and then there's this whole kind of newfound technocratic regime that's working to kind of ex- you know use the information that he he actually passed on. So tell me the story. And the story that I started the book involves an individual who were there, uh, committed no crime, uh, having a foreign contact, and simply there for a family visit were picked up by the Chinese security. And uh, he was in the verge of being uh, sent to the concentration camp. And, and the, the, the method that they used was very, very um, uh, uh, concerning because they relied on the past travel history, foreign contact, and even some social contacts to create this massive database that this individual caught up with. And, and while this was all happening, the machine was spitting out more names relied or based on or generated with the help of something called Integrated Joint Operating Platform, mm. IJOP that was reverse-engineered and reported by Human Rights Watch a couple of years ago. That part of the story was uh, investigated and reported by ICIJ, uh, International Consortium on Investigative Journalism. Uh, 
uh, that stem from the leaked documents. Um, some people call it uh, operating manual. Some people call it um, uh, Nazis, uh, Nazi Germany's playbook or pages from the playbook. Nonetheless, that particular uh, leaked documents uh, was initially reported, uh, investigated by Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Coincided and verified some of the stories that are heard from the camp survivors, direct, indirect victims of the ongoing uh, genocide uh, in the Uyghur homeland, East Turkestan. It's such an incredible thing because basically this guy gets picked up by Chinese security, right? And they start pumping him for information and get pulling all sorts of, you know, some of the things that you described. And altogether, they managed to generate a database of 20,000 contacts, you know, people who he, he was, you know, one step away from or two steps away from. And, but not only that, they actually go after most of them. That's the part that's mind-blowing. What happened was in, in a 10 days period in 2017, the Chinese security um, uh, put out an arrest warrant for 20,000 people, or more than 20,000 people. But the police were not able to identify, locate all of them. They were scratching their heads, cussing at each other, and then they come up with about 17,000. In just 10 days, short period of time, 17,000 people's lives are shattered. No one ever bothered to ask, what crime did they commit? And no one bothered to ask, what will happen to them in the future? So the lives of those people are so meaningless to the Chinese uh, uh, architects of the, uh, today's nightmare. When you discuss that significant number of people being di uh, disappeared or affected by the ongoing genocidal campaign, most people find it um, uh, incredible that that many people can be rounded up. There's a quota, and this is all generated by machine. And this, this tech authoritarianism, this uh, uh, pervasive surveillance, initially starting with the data collect, personal data collection, that includes sound samples, voice samples, um, uh, iris samples, uh, DNA samples. They created a massive database starting early 2012 all the way to 2016. So people using WeChat, communicating, traveling, passport application. Uh, even uh, uh, signing up in a, uh, an aqueous tour, uh, uh, tourist sightseeing around the world. If you happen to be one of those 26 countries, including the United States, you are part of the IGA, uh, IJOP uh, database. That was the basis for the Chinese security to start running on people. So this is how it started, and it's still ongoing. And because of this IJOP, uh, the Uyghur uh, uh, individuals on the ground, made a conscious decision to discontinue or deleting uh, foreign contacts, the children, even some instances, instances uh, spouses, uh, uh, in order to avoid being caught up in this Like deleting network. them from their devices, like yeah. computers and cell phones. Because, and they, like because you're subject to a regular uh, phone data scan. Uh, if you have somebody uh, in your phone uh, contacts, or if you have a history of text messaging and calling, uh, if you end up being, uh, if your device is scanned by police, there's a chance that you'll be end up being in the camp. So the parents, a lot of Uyghurs around the world, uh, when you talk to average Uyghur, he will tell you why and, and how long that person is not able to um, speak with their parents. In one heart-wrenching story, that the president of the World Congress, Dolkan Issa, 
found out about his missing father, a mother who died in a concentration camp through a Radio Free Asia reporting. He had no contact with his family whatsoever. And this is happening in our society here in the United States and Canada. There are thousands of the Uyghur uh, individuals in diaspora still to this day cannot have a normal, uh, regular contact because of IJOP. Well, so I want to talk a little bit more about this database because it's very important, something that a lot of people yeah. know about. Before we go there, you know, you are a pretty unique person in this country. Um, and I think you've actually played a pretty important role in helping people understand the reality of what the Chinese Communist Party does to its own people, notably the Uyghurs, but not just. Yeah. And so, but I want to talk a little bit about how you got here. So a little bit of this memoir. I mean, you were actually born in a re-education camp. And that's not something a lot of people can fathom easily. I never thought um, and never imagined talking about my uh, arriving to this world the way that I have almost daily, uh, if it was not for the new type of uh, camps that the Chinese uh, Communist Party set up. Uh, of course, that's a different type of camp. But what is similar is the method, uh, the thinking, particularly this uh, terribly... Um, uh, particularly this um, uh, a, a word that I have very uh, allergic reaction, uh, which is transformation, uh, the thought transformation, uh, re-education. Uh, they have done this to Falun Gong practitioners. They have done this to uh, Tibetan monks. They've done this to uh, Christian uh, underground Christian leaders in the past, and now they're doing it whole uh, in an industrial scale to the Uyghur uh, people. But back then, uh, it was the Red Guard. Today is the Communist Party. That's probably the only difference. That uh, camp that I was born in and spent few several months of my life was resembling or copying more like a Stalin's gulag. Mm -hmm. And today's camp more, more uh, shared a lot of similarities with the Nazi camps, concentration camps, the Dachau, the Auschwitz. This has been an ongoing uh, repressive policies, just with a different name, a different excuse. Um, I, and also this shows that um, uh, speaking out this brutal regime comes with a heavy cost. Uh, just to give an example, this brutal regime does not even allow my parents to hold their American grandchildren, to live with respect and dignity. It just breaks my heart that people try to normalize this regime, uh, cannot even stand their own population, afraid of their own population. What kind of government uh, can be normalized if they cannot even stand their own population? So many things I want to talk to you about here, but one question actually a lot of people might have in their minds is how is it that someone who was born the mother in a re-education camp, and actually your father in a different one. Yeah, right. It was in labor at the, at camp. the same time. How is it that you can actually get out and get to the U.S.? How does that happen? So, um, to my benefit, I was a resident in inland China. Uh, getting passport, as you as you may aware, is impossible proposition in China, uh, especially if you part of the other group, not the mainstream. Um, a, a Chinese citizen. Um, the getting passport was the most difficult part. And then um, the other as uh, the challenging aspect is uh, the financial aspect, you know, who's going to cover your uh, education. So as I pointed out, my parents uh, give me their life savings 
to send me to America for various reasons, political, economic, and future uh, career. Um, as long as you have a visa, as long as you have a passport, then uh, it may not be the case today, but you are allowed to leave. So I had legitimate documents, uh, graduate school admission letters, um, the bank statements, you know, as they see, as they require in the uh, the embassies when they're processing your application. So um, uh, it was it was very challenging for me to get even a passport, and this is something that I'm still fighting. In the last 13 years, um, I've tried to get my parents. My father recently passed away. Even my mother to uh, to return to the United States. They have traveled here twice in the past. The Chinese knowingly purposefully denying my, my mother's uh, passport application. And so I guess, you know, at that time, somehow you weren't really on their radar. They didn't realize, as, realize you know, kind of what you would become once you head overseas. The, that, that's a great question. Um, in all fairness, I was not um, politically active. The Uyghur nightmare essentially started with two things. One, the end of the uh, June 4th pro-democracy movement, uh, Tiananmen Massacre, uh, that Chinese military killed thousands of uh, students protesting or demanding democratic freedom. And then the other uh, major event was the uh, end of the Cold War that resulted in um, several um, Central Asian countries that have a historical uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, ties to the Uyghur people. That made the Chinese to ratchet up, and I sensed that. I sensed that intensity in their uh, official propaganda, uh, and I, I sensed that in their official lines uh, condemning the West, uh, the United States in particular, for supporting the uh, uh, June 4th pro-democracy movement, as well as supporting the dissidents in Central Eastern Europe that led to the demise of the Soviet Union. So I, I was very aware of it, and it actually, it actually inspired me to go to America. That was part of the reason that I said, okay, um, there's no future for me in this country. There's no political future. There may not be even a gainful employment for me, being a member of an oppressed uh, ethnic group in China. Why don't I go to a country that makes a difference in people's lives? So that's, that brought me to the United States in 1995. You said that your father passed away. It's 18 years now, right, that he wasn't able, you weren't able to see him or he wasn't able to see his grandchildren. It, um, my, my father, um, people of course, uh, everyone could say this, but my father was a remarkable um, individual um, and source, of, source for inspiration uh, for me and my brothers. Um, he always emphasized learning, uh, you know, to get the best education, excel, whatever the career you end up um, having in the, in the end. And he also someone who is remarkably resilient that despite him being um, uh, forced to spend three years for nothing in a labor camp and forced to be separated for, from his wife, um, newly vetted wife, who was pregnant with me, he was not bitter. You know, he was uh, always um, had a, such a positive worldview um, instead of being bitter, uh, uh, he always focused on us, our education, our um, values. But what is most difficult thing for me to fathom today is the fact that uh, despite my um, um, uh, effort giving the best I can, uh, 
past during the past four, uh, 13 plus years, I was not able to get him and mom out of China to let them uh, come to the United States to have a few days uh, of a dignified life, uh, embracing their American grandchildren. That was taken away from us. And, and the most hurtful thing that I, uh, I've been sharing with public uh, through my message right uh, after my dad passed away, the fact that I was so close, I was essentially next door in Uzbekistan when I heard the news, uh, and yet I was not able to go uh, hold my mom and, and carry dad's casket. Even that was taken away from me because I got sanctioned last uh, December. I can tell you more about it if you're interested, but I got sanctioned and I was in official travel uh, to Uzbekistan, literally next door and almost as, uh, like the same distance from here to New York. And yet because of uh, Beijing's uh, willful, deliberate uh, method of punishing me and my family for doing what I have been doing as a free person in the United States, I was prevented doing something so normal, so basic for most people in free societies. Um, that was the most difficult part. I haven't seen my mother uh, since my law school graduation. Uh, in, they were here in 2004. I had uh, two weeks uh, with dad um, in late 2014 in Turkey. That's mm -hmm. about it. And in, um, in the last 27, 18, uh, 27, in the, uh, since 1995, I had been only able to spend 11 months uh, with mom and dad, which in of itself is quite a um, painful experience for me. I, 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 um, I haven't had the chance to hug and touch my parents more than half of my life. So what you're describing is this, you know, standard Chinese Communist Party policy of guilt by association. Um, I mean, with the Uyghur people, it's frankly like the entire group of Uyghurs has basically been, this policy has been foisted on them. But so let, let's talk about why you were sanctioned, because I mean, it took, it took 20 years of hard work to get that sanction. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this kind of joking, but you were sanctioned after um, the U.S. State Department officially designated uh, basically what the crimes against humanity and the Uyghur people yeah, as yeah. a genocide. Yeah. And so, you know, why do you think they picked you? Um, I, you know, I can't um, specifically speak for their um, thought process or the, the uh, decision making process, but what it was. What was obvious uh, then and now is that they wanted to send a message that um, they can go after anyone. Uh, not only me, uh, six other commissioners um, at USERF, where I have been commissioner now, I'm serving vice chair, uh, have been sanctioned. And this is a small uh, federal government agency. Uh, we monitor religious freedom around the world. And the countries that we monitor around the world are kind of a Chinese um, uh, friends, uh, to say in a, in a nicer, uh, 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 using a nicer word. Um, Secretary Pompeo said that the China has its own league when it comes to human rights abuses, and those are the countries exactly in that league. Uh, that's one piece. They wanted to send a message to their allies, uh, their friends. They don't have ally, but their supporters, that um, they can do this uh, to punish uh, uh, U.S. officials who have been critical of those countries' uh, religious uh, persecution 
history of religious persecution. And then two, they want to send a message to the uh, U.S. government, the executive branch in Congress, that they are also can go after U.S. officials. And finally, I think they also wanted to send a message to the Uyghur community uh, that they can go after a high-profile Uyghur advocate for them, um, uh, that there is a cost if you continue to speak out. Um, there are a number of uh, uh, U.S. and Western Canadian European politicians, lawmakers uh, have been sanctioned, uh, including uh, several academics. But I don't think that the Chinese uh, government understand that we're not afraid of them. You know, this is what we do. We got sanctioned for us doing the right thing, defending religious freedom and human rights and speaking out against atrocities. But we're sanctioning them for violating the international law, the basic norm of human rights. So there's a fundamental difference. This is why when they sanctioned Western officials, their response is a badge of honor. But when we sanction them, that is real. Uh, we go after their uh, uh, you know, bank accounts. We put a restriction on travel, uh, travel rights. Uh, none of the individuals, especially uh, in the U.S. government, including Secretary Pompeo, uh, former Deputy National Security Advisor Pottinger, or Commerce Secretary, was planning to go to spend the summer in, um, in Beijing. Uh, so I think it's okay. Um, uh, but, um, but what I wanted to highlight is that I got sanctioned for the policies, uh, policy announcement by the U.S. government that I advocated for. It is, uh, to the extent, uh, a gratifying experience to see. I mean, this happened right after the Olympic boycott announcement. This happened right after the uh, 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 U.S. sanctioning of four senior Chinese officials under the Global Magnitsky Act. This has happened around the time that the major legislation, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, was passed in Congress and about to become law. So, you know, these are the things that I advocated for. Uh, if the Chinese wanted to go after me, so be it. You know, um, when you do the right thing, there's always cost. There's always risk to it. But at the end of the day, the history will be kind to those who end up doing the right thing. So for the better part of 20 years, you've been basically advocating for the rights of the Uyghur people, yeah. Chinese people. Frankly, and, and the right? others who have, who have been persecuted in a similar fashion. Right, right. And so, well, how did this start? Because this, isn't, this wasn't your full-time job, but you got to the point where you were successful in getting a yeah. genocide designation, not yourself, of course, yes. many people. But, I mean, it's frankly rare for human rights advocates to see... I guess the fruits of their labor is so clearly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, without without getting into too much of the details as to the process, there was a turning point uh, in February 1997. This was roughly around around two years um, uh, being in America. Um, what happened was in my father's hometown. There was a young Uyghurs took to the streets to protest against forced uh, abortion, uh, nuclear testing, uh, restriction on social rights. As you recall, I mentioned the post-Cold uh, War tightening up. It was around the time that they ratcheting up the pressure. Um, and and the, the police response was so brutal. It was a frigid February uh, weather. You could easily die if you don't properly, uh, you know, uh, wear clothes. 
the weather was so cold. Mm -hmm. They used water hose and rounded up lots of people. Um, and this was around the time that um, I was just debating whether I should go back to China after my, college, my graduate education. And from 1995 all the way to that period, uh, I didn't involve in any political, uh, public political even discussion, let alone being so public as I have been in the past um, uh, uh, decade or so. Um, that was a turning point. And then I thought, okay, this is the government cannot even handle the children, young kids, demanding something so basic. You know, to be able to have a children is, is the decision that should be decided by a couple, not by the government. And then, you know, demanding uh, that nuclear testing uh, stop is a legitimate uh, demand. And they didn't have to be subject to that uh, water hosing, uh, mass uh, detention and heavy imprisonment. So, and it happened in my father's hometown. Uh, it hit me hard, and I and it made me realize, okay, this is it, it is naivete to think that this government will do the right thing. I give them enough time. I never went to publicly criticize them, and I was always giving them benefit of the doubt that they may end up doing the right thing. That was the turning point. So. It fast forward, and then another uh, turning point was in 9-11. Um, that also, uh, I took it very personal. And even to this day, whenever any government uh, uses religion um, as an excuse for repression, uh, calling religious practices as some extremist ideology, thought virus, uh, evil, uh, that kind of uh, rhetoric, comes from any government, doesn't matter. Even our government don't talk like that, but even in some Western government, uh, in their relationship with dealing with national security issues, was, was, is unacceptable for me. Because that's the beginning of today's nightmare. After the 9-11, the international community looked the other way. Even uh, United States agreed to designate some obscure organization as a terrorist organization that given the green light to the Chinese uh, regime. So uh, that was another turning point. So that, the Chinese Communist Party basically used this as an opportunity. Absolutely. Right. Even to this yeah. day, they, even to this day, they use this to justify these atrocious uh, crimes that are committing against vulnerable religious and ethnic groups as we speak. The international community rightfully focusing on the Uyghurs, but the others should be given uh, the same level of attention. The Falun Gong practitioners, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Catholics, they're not getting the enough attention. They should be even appearing, I should be appearing in the same discussion and same sentence because they're also equally uh, uh, vulnerable. And this is what makes me worry today. If we don't stop this atrocity, this, this crime committed against the Uyghurs, it may become a new norm and it will be used against others, even though some of it already been in practice. For example, the or organ harvesting uh, that Falun Gong practitioners were subjected to or organ har harvesting, organ trade, and people didn't pay attention. Now it's happening to the Uyghurs. So they, they recycle, uh, using one group as a test ground to the others and implement. If it's successful, it becomes a new norm. That's what makes me worry about. Um, so I start speaking out after 9-11. Um, I wrote uh, essays. Um, I picked up a new hobby, writing uh, op-eds. Uh, I get involved in the Guantanamo uh, work to... Uh, 
in the efforts to uh, cleanse a Uyghur image that was uh, tarnished because of some of the short-sighted decisions made by our own government uh, in the Bush administration. And then uh, 2009, there was another turning point, the Urumqi unrest, uh, where students took to the street to protest against the brutal brutality that the workers in this toy factory in Guangdong experienced. Again, this is related to this uh, uh, forced labor practice that we we were we know more about today. And, and this peaceful protesters, just like the 1997, uh, met with heavy armed Chinese uh, security. Thousands of people disappeared. Uh, we still don't know what happened to those people who were taken. Financial Times reported then, um, in just one night, uh, 4,000 people detained, and they could not, uh, they, they were over capacity. They used the warehouse to keep those people. To this day, we don't know. And then, um, obviously, naturally, you know, uh, uh, in late 2016, 2017, we find out about today's nightmare. You mentioned 2016 many times, and I want to highlight this for our audience, you know. Something very significant happened, which is like the basically the man who quote-unquote pacified Tibet was basically shifted to Xinjiang to basic ostensibly to do the same. Yeah. Um, and this, I mean, that's a very significant change. Absolutely. Um, some policy analysts, some historians find similarities between this person Chen Chuan-Guo and Adolf Heichmann uh, because of uh, his effort to exceed the expectation of his superior, which is, which is Xi Jinping in this case. Um, Chen Zhuanguo is, uh, he has a military background. His private life is very uh, secretive, even to this day. Uh, he did an amazing job, quote-unquote, on behalf of CCP in Tibet. During his tenure, we saw a significant number of Tibetans uh, Tibetan self-immolation. We, uh, we know now that he was the one installed all the surveillance apparatus during his tenure in Tibet. And because of his effort and quote-unquote success in squelching Tibetan resentment, he got promoted in August 2016. When he was moved to Urumqi from Lhasa, he brought his own security uh, detail as reported in the New Yorker piece. Uh, last year. Not only that, he set up a uh, command center in a uh, government hotel in Urumqi. It sounds like, a, you know, it just gives you an Im image of a uh, science fiction that there's this uh, massive uh, surveillance apparatus, cameras, screens all around you, and you sit there. Uh, instead of being a polit political um, uh, leader for the Communist Party, you essentially managing uh, the massive, the, uh, the largest prison system that the world has not seen since the Holocaust, the massive surveillance apparatus that the modern era no country has seen, and also um, the, the immense political uh, power that he was bestowed by Xi Jinping to do whatever. I mean, leaked documents shows that Xi Jinping essentially said, show no mercy. That is a policy uh, pronouncement. And then the Chen Zhuanggo goes around and tells his uh, officials, uh, round up, everyone should be rounded up. Unlike the United States, other liberal democracies, there's no policy debate in China. If a, a supreme leader or his henchman or supporter uh, says a, a few words, uh, that becomes a policy. So Chen Zhuanggo was sanctioned under the Global Magnitsky Act. 
and recently he's been promoted. He's been, people think that he is removed, but he, that it doesn't work like that in China. You don't, Chinese never ever punish their political uh, uh, individuals or party officials who serve the interest of party. Even to this day, they don't even condemn Lipang, who's the one ordered the massacre in Tiananmen Square. So uh, uh, there are a lot of naivete, a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding in the Western societies when they talk about China. So this person rightfully been sanctioned. I've been advocating this. His network should be looked into for potential uh, targeted sanction because no perpetrator, no bad actor, no brutal regime or entities, individuals should, should be allowed to remain anonymous. They should be subject to public naming shaming. I'm just going to read something. I pulled a quote from the book about, you know, what things kind of look like in this system that you were just describing. So this is what you wrote. You wrote, whenever Zumrat met someone she trusted in the streets, there was a little ritual each person would go through before exchanging tidbits of gossip. First, they would roll their eyes up or to the left or right to indicate where the nearest surveillance camera was mounted and then talk briefly, scratching their noses or mouths so that their words could not be deciphered by lip reading. As in other totalitarian states, paranoia became the watchword for survival, only more so because China could use its cutting-edge artificial intelligence and high-tech monitoring to peer into the most private recesses of people's lives. So this is, this is very riveting, um, uh, uh, one piece of the story that I've been heard from many people who are either directly or indirectly affected by it. Uh, the daily fear, uh, we're rightfully focused on those uh, rounded up in the camp, but we forgot what is the life uh, for the people outside of the camp, as described by Zumret. Cameras are ubiquitous. Uh, they have uh, mobile police cars. They can stop you, uh, check your mobile device for um, problematic content uh, that includes an aqueous picture or text message or call and, history. And you have to check in and you, you know, get basically yeah. get your phone scanned. Absolutely. In, uh, I got involved in a, uh, a two hour long documentary produced by Frontline. In the beginning of that show, uh, a well known uh, AI expert, uh, Mr. Lee said that China is a new Saudi Arabia for personal data today. Um, that shows what they did to reach to this point. So nothing you do in a society can escape the eyes of the uh, surveillance apparatus. So Zumret's uh, uh, narrative uh, or the environment that she described to me is very common. Look, can you imagine that you live in a society that everywhere you go, you're, you're literally under the camera. Not only the camera is pointing at you, but the mobile device that you're carrying is essentially a, a tracking device and listening device. And also, uh, can you imagine that you go through various checkpoints every day, subjecting yourself to a daily humiliation simply because you happen to be Uyghur, simply you have a different lifestyle, simply you follow different religions, simply you follow different tradition, and the others waving their hand when they go through the checkpoints. It's, it's just a daily fear. Uh, you know, the State Department official, Dan Nadell, uh, said that uh, the China has created an open-air prison for the Uyghur people. Uh, I think that's an accurate description. This was said uh, during the uh, press conference uh, on the occasion of the annual Religious Freedom Report uh, release. So um, 
the, the stories that uh, Zumret and others described to me um, are very common. Uh, in some instance, I was told that um, uh, individuals go to their relative's apartment complex, could not get in because their facial recognition uh, or their personal information were not previously vetted and stored. Uh, so it, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. This makes me um, uh, very worried about the future. I, I am somewhat disturbed that the international community uh, policymakers um, are not paying enough attention to this. This is not a political issue. This is about future. You know, this is just becoming new normal. The surveillance, uh, that pervasiveness that Zumret was telling me uh, during those interviews, uh, is metastasizing. Uh, China has exported uh, the same surveillance techniques to over 80 countries about a year and a half ago. I'm sure that the number is much more significant today. So that should concern uh, those of us who live in a free societies, those of us who care about freedom, those of us who care about our privacy, those of us who care about future of the health of democracy. One of the things that really, I mean, it's horrifying, but it rang very true to me because some of the testimonies that I heard personally that I was writing up for the UN, you know, maybe 15 years ago, is basically the use of rape as a tool of punishment and as a tool of this tr quote unquote transformation that you were describing to drive people insane. And this is, you know, you, you, you document that this is, you know, very, very common in these camps. The sexual violence against the Uyghur woman um, was part of the way that the Chinese uh, government treating uh, this vulnerable population. Um, not only this, is, this was happening in the camp, as you may recall, about a year or so ago, uh, there was a tweet put out by the Chinese embassy here in Washington, D.C. This essentially likened the Uyghur woman to a baby-making machine. So it says that we're liberating Uyghur woman from being a baby-making machine. That was the most horrifying things, among other things that I've heard uh, publicly from the Chinese um, uh, government entity here in the United States. It took us a lot of effort to even convince Twitter to take it down. This was here at home. Uh, why do I bring this up? They think all those sexual violence that they're subjecting Uyghur women to, this mysterious drug that they're giving, uh, forced sterilization, uh, collective punishment uh, through gang rape, uh, are the method that they're liberating the Uyghur woman. I mean, just let that think in. They do that, and then the, the embassy in Washington tried to justify uh, claiming that they're liberating the Uyghur woman from being a baby-making machine. Uh, in the prisons, uh, based on what I've heard from the camp survivors, I interviewed uh, several, only profile three. Uh, something very common, they always looking for a younger, most vulnerable ones. Uh, and then two, the prison guards apparently instructed to do that. Uh, there was a hab habitual practice to get women out of the cell in the middle of the night, randomly. And there was uh, also uh, unwanted pregnancies that I was told that the state owned those babies and those mothers who get pregnant disappears, never return to the cell. It, it reminds the old KGB tactics to uh, make babies and then let them train from the very early age. 
to be loyal to the um, Soviet regime. It's very similar tactics. This has to be investigated and verified, but I was, I was told that there's such a practice. And also uh, Tursun Ayziyavdum, who were on the news, that I did not put on the book, but I had a, a, a number of conversations with her about ordeal. She was um, gang raped in prison. And also they're using uh, methods to torture, uh, subject her to sexual torture. I was sitting in, in a, a public hearing uh, in May 2021, last year, uh, organized by uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee. I could not even um, uh, hold my tear, uh, hold my emotion while I was listening to her. After being told so many times by others similar uh, sexual violence, um, it was a public hearing. And this also reminds, uh, it's a reminder of how Hitler treated a Jewish woman uh, during the Holocaust. Uh, using their hair, using Jewish women for forced labor, it's the same practice, targeting women and children. What kind of nation can exist when you target and destroy their children and women? And this is brutal. They should be condemned um, uh, all around. Um, and one other thing that I also learned, and this is also very disturbing, that the Uyghur women are not spared, even at their homes. Uh, the uh, uninvited unwanted uh, Chinese cadres coming uh, to Uyghur homes, um, uninvited, sleeping and eating with a woman uh, and children where there are no male protection available for them. Uh, in some instances, they were subject to sexual violence. Uh, one of the uh, Uyghur victims I profiled uh, even showed me uh, pictures of those um, relatives, quote-unquote, uh, and also, I was told that they demand sexual favors when they stay uh, with those Uyghur families. So it is a wholesale attack. Uh, in a society, you live in this fear, uh, surveillance, even at your home. They come to stay with you, intimidate you, even using your children to spy on you. Uh, and any an, an, uh, honest answer by your children um, to questions such as, do your parents pray at home? Uh, do your parents read Quran? Do you guys have, do you know if they uh, have a copy of Quran? Do they have prayer met at home? Children are honest. They tell what they know. Um, so um, th th these are the things that I've been uh, able to learn uh, and, and able to describe in the book. Um, I think we should talk more about the sexual violence against the Uyghur woman. Uh, I think it's purposeful, deliberate, they tried to destroy the nation. And this brings us to another point that still some people think this is a uh, topic for academic discussion, that if this is a genocide or not. The genocide perpetuators or the, uh, the, the actors, the regime or individuals committing genocide never announced that, oh, I'm, I'm going to go out and commit a genocide. They also uh, skillfully, uh, in the case of China, find a gray area that makes it difficult to justify through a legal uh, discussion. So um, the, the, woman, the violence against the woman, uh, separating Uyghur children from their parents forcibly from one group to another, uh, attempt to destroy in part and whole of this ethnic group, goes to the heart of the legal definition of genocide. Yeah, and I, I, I can't help think that exactly what you're talking about right now squares with a lot of the types of testimonies I heard from prisoners of conscience, from Falun Gong practitioners, from others, uh, other religious dissidents, uh, you know, 15 plus years ago. Yeah. So this isn't this isn't new policy. 
right? This, these are policies that have been recycled, like you said. Yeah. You know, and in this case, you know, basically imposed on a, you know, somewhat isolated geographic region, almost creating like a. Per I've seen it described as the perfect police state. Yes, the um, um, through my research, um, through my interviews with various people, um, the most difficult, challenging part of writing a book is hours of uh, countless hours of interviews that you you need to um, go through, and research and reading that you do. Today in China, people live in a kind of a combination of North Korea and the United States at the same time. It is like a North Korea police state, most repressive, because there's no freedom. Uh, and people uh, kind of believing in the things that was told uh, in uh, George Orwell's 1984, like believing without question of what the state says. Um, and also, um, unwilling to criticize the state, the CCP, even though that's so repressive, pervasive, uh, invasive in many aspects. Um, and the Chinese, as you know, spend more money on domestic security than national defense. Why would you do that? Uh, what, is the, what is the source of your sense of insecurity? Why, do you, um, fear, why are you fearful of your own population? So those are the things are so obvious but the, the Chinese people decided, apparently, uh, to uh, not to criticize uh, the regime. The United States aspect, I think, has a lot to do with the materialistic uh, satisfaction that they were so fixated, uh, or materialistic desire. You know, big cars, big homes, vacation in Western Europe, in some instance, um, uh, owning private jet, uh, having successful business in a kind of a Russian oligarchy type of setup. And this is a handful of people, not everyone. It's decided, picked by the CCP, but they don't call them, call them oligarchs, uh, or they don't even call them princeling, but it's all selected people. If you look at the, uh, the CEO of Huawei, essentially a former PLA, it's picked by uh, the central government and to, do, to run this government entity. Um, so those people are, are, are willing to send their children overseas to good schools, spend European uh, time in European vacation, big yacht, private jet, multiple homes. And they are also not willing to uh, disturb that uh, luxury. So they could, the CCP, um, uh, uh, lack of a better word, uh, efficient, effectively created this strange lifestyle that people could have uh, a taste of North Korea and the United States or West at the same time. So I, I, I do this what also makes me worry. Oftentimes when people, when we talk about these things, the first reaction that you get from uh, Chinese speaking individuals, even those who had exposed to uh, uh, free societies often try to play whataboutism game. Uh, immediately saying, oh, you know, um, there's also large uh, black prison population in the United States. Oh, the United States has done ABCD to, uh, to Native Americans. Oh, the uh, United States has done ABCD to so-and-so country. Uh, that instead of thinking carefully, okay, this may not be happening to me today. It initially happened to the uh, uh, Tiananmen Square pro-democracy activists and then the Falun Gong practitioners and the Tibetans and the Uyghurs. They don't ask themselves, am I going to be the next? You know, borrowing the lines from the Martin Neumiller, you know, when they come to look for me, there's no one else, no one to speak for me. 
because initially he didn't care because he was not unionist, he didn't care because he was not Jew. And then when the, the Nazi regime came for him, I worry that this, this, this uh, strange lifestyle, this social environment, uh, trying to help to justify a central government, eventually make the matters worse for a people who are also a victim of the CCP regime. You know, you're reminding me a bit of uh, Moynihan's Law. Someone just kind of brought this up in a recent uh, uh, interview I, I did. And the Moynihan, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, of yeah. course, is you know, Moynihan's Law is basically the more a country talks about human rights, the better the human rights are in that place. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and this is also proven scientifically. Or, or complains or complains about human rights. Right, right. The better the human rights are. And that's, it, you have to think about it for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, when um, I, as part of my official uh, duty, uh, uh, responsibility, I always go around, uh, tell uh, diplomatic representatives, uh, essentially repeating the same line as you uh, eloquently quoted from someone that I revere. Um, you know, the societies that respect human rights, religious freedom, individual rights are much more prosperous and stable. The societies, does, societies or governments do the, uh, the opposite, end up buying themselves uh, more trouble. And this has been seen time and time again. Of course, we're not perfect, but we have places to go to. They, we have a ways to um, uh, air our frustration, uh, express our disapprovals, or even take matters to the court, you know, seeking justice uh, in, in, in some instances. I often um, use this example, um, you know, as a U.S. official, um, I can criticize uh, our president, I can criticize Congress, um, uh, and, I, and I can go to Lafayette Park to organize protest, and no one is going to arrest me as long as I do it um, uh, with approval uh, within the parameter. But can you imagine an a, a official who were uh, in the Chinese government shows up in a Tiananmen Square? chanting one anti-China slogan, and you can imagine what, what so this whataboutism is, is just uh, the worst argument that people can put out. Well, you know, so, okay, I have two thoughts here, right? Um, but there does seem to be a kind of, you know, weird, I'll call it weird admiration that certain Americans have for the Chinese system. Mm -hmm. And I'll, you know, the case in point, and people have sort of debated, I've, I've been watched seeing this for a while, but, you know, we, we're looking today as we speak, there's these massive lockdowns, you know, of hundreds of millions yeah. of people in China. Um, they did this, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, and all these Western countries, ostensibly free countries, threw out all their pandemic playbooks, which, of course, had nothing to do with lockdowns, and adopted Chinese Communist Party policies. I mean, bizarrely, and you know, and of course, many of us stunned didn't fully realize what was happening as this happened. But it, you know, it, it's very clear that 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 there, there was some something changed, and somehow we decided that this Chinese Communist Party model of approaching a pandemic, for example, is the one we were going to do, and we're we're, and we're frankly watching it happen again. I, I, I would add uh, uh, three more examples to uh, what you were describing, that we are uh, unwittingly becoming something that we are against, uh, traditionally, historically, and societally. One, uh, self-censorship. The people who criticize the CCP in today's environment, uh, 
uh, in the academic community is almost non-existent, except for a few examples. So self-censorship. The other piece that is also very important, um, in China I just mentioned about the business community. Um, the, um, the Chinese business elites don't criticize their own government. Uh, in, our, in, our, in our business community, they just picked uh, whatever is convenient for them. Uh, in the case of Coca-Cola, they're ready to criticize our government, but for the same, uh, 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 using the same freedom, they never call out the Chinese uh, government, the CCP, even though Coca-Cola were implicated in forced labor practices, even though Coca-Cola uh, sp one of the key sponsors of the Genocide Olympic in February 2022. Uh, and also there's another piece. Um, uh, so it, it, when you look at the, uh, these practices, it's hard to make the distinction between some of the well-known business leaders, business elites in Silicon Valley, for example, from those, uh, those tech elites in China. So what, difference, uh, what would differentiate their position uh, so they greed, uh, their focus, laser focus on their economic interests, uh, in a way making them almost like the Chinese tech, tech executives. To me, that's very disturbing. And finally, Hollywood. The Hollywood is traditionally, uh, you know, in American society, very vocal when they see something uh, not right. Uh, when was the last time that you see any a serious Hollywood star criticizing CCP? You talked talk about lockdown. Even some of them even went further to pamper China for its mis a handling of COVID better than us. So the American people need to wake up. Uh, what they see is not what they should uh, be uh, thinking of. Uh, this regime that we're dealing with is not a really a government. It's, it's, it's controlled by a communist government, a communist regime, a communist party. Uh, their domestic policy, their foreign policy, their economic policies, even the societal policies, all set by a communist party. So this normalization of this regime, uh, thinking in a offensive way, uh, you know, it, which proven to be a wrong approach in the last 30 years, a lot of people, even some reasonable smart people think that helping uh, the Chinese regime uh, with technology and education and, 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 uh, and finance with investment, for example, would make them uh, sound like us, uh, talk like us, walk like us, but it didn't happen. So I think it's a, it's a time for the American uh, public to stop um, playing whataboutism or doing the bidding for Beijing and, and see what, what CCP is really about. We've seen it in Hong Kong, we've seen it in the Uyghur homeland, and now we're seeing it in real time in the uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So this naivete think, uh, 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 thinking, uh, uh, this short-sighted uh, view that China could help uh, in XYZ matters, I think is short-sighted. Let's talk about this, right? Because one of the things that we saw, you know, essentially, you know, kind of through the Trump administration, you know, when you document this uh, in different ways in the book, is a dramatic shift in how all of society, not just the administration, but just how society perceives the Chinese Communist Party. And then with COVID, it, you know, went another step perhaps, right? Um, now, now there's a genocide designation. I mean, it, yeah. Genocide is the single worst thing I think, you know, uh, government and organization can do to a group of people. I think we, this is why the Genocide yeah. Convention was created, right? right? Um, 
how's U.S. policy doing at the moment? Even though, and I'll, admittedly, things have shifted quite a bit. And starting from uh, uh, fall 2018, um, with, uh, as you may recall, um, former Vice President Mike Pence delivered um, China policy speech uh, at the Hudson Institute, where I have uh, the pleasure of being uh, working as a senior fellow. I think that was the beginning of the shift. A number of things happened, even though we did not see the type of uh, result, even though the, uh, the Uyghur genocide, for example, in its sixth year, what, we, what we're seeing in American society is the consensus. Some people think that's an exaggeration. That's not. Uh, Pew Research showed uh, that significant vast majority of American people, um, I would say about 70% American population, wants a strong human rights-centric foreign policy with respect to China. Uh, that's one uh, good indication, healthy indication. We're a demo uh, representative democracy. If American people wants our government to go one way or the other, we have to go that way. And that's how you represent the will of the people. And then the other piece is that um, I think because of the previous administration's um, uh, public statements and policy pronouncements, uh, executive actions, uh, created this healthy debate uh, in, in our um, academic, uh, particularly in a uh, policy circle, <clears throat> that we have to change the strategy. The, uh, the past engagement, thinking that China will become one of us, did not work. And they're eating our lunch, if I may borrow uh, uh, Vice President Mike Pence's line from that particular speech. And also American people are starting to realize that United States helped to build China, the modern China. I think that issue has been identified. Uh, thanks to the previous administration and recognition by the current administration. Um, they're using a different language, but uh, the recognition of this problem, the serious problem, is something I, I was so pleased to see. On the policy front, um, I, never, I never thought uh, any cause, let alone a, a Uyghur cause, that didn't have a, a serious financial um, capacity would be able to pull off this many policy um, uh, decisions, legislative actions in a short period of time. We're talking about like essentially two, three years. Uh, since 2019, 2020, uh, the US Congress enacted two uh, major bills specifically designed to address the Uyghur um, genocide, the Uyghur uh, 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 crisis, uh, and the uh, modern day slavery which is huge. You know, as you know, it requires a lot of effort, financial and, and human effort, to put in place any type of legislation. And most uh, a significant aspect of this is the unanimity, uh, the, uh, the bipartisan, bicameral spirit shown, displayed. Um, you know, there was a joke in 2020 that if anyone so on, uh, wanted to bring the polarized Congress together, the topic should be Uyghur, um, uh, because that's the, that's, the, that's the issue that most members of Congress could agree on, uh, agree upon. Um, as shown in the uh, legislative uh, voting history, 
there was a unanimous consent in, in both bills and over 400 members of uh, uh, Congress and the House side voted in favor. And both Trump and Biden signed on these bills. So that, that I think that should be a message to the Chinese that this is not something as they see that cre could create a division uh, uh, or it, some politicians playing, like they used to accuse uh, Trump administration for being anti-China and doing using the Uyghur uh, genocide as a uh, ways and means to achieve political objectives. But if that is true, why this is still ongoing in, in the current administration? So, so that's, that's, I think it's really positive. Um, what, it, what is not working is uh, uh, inconsistencies. So when you make a policy pronouncement, or if you put out a action, um, the implementation is as important as the, you are making the initial decision. So uh, since 2000, uh, late 2019, on the Uyghur genocide alone, uh, both Trump and Biden administration uh, issued more than 100 uh, punitive sanctions. That includes uh, entity list designation, glow bag, visa restriction, uh, and some of it were not fully implemented. And these two pieces of legislation that become law in summer 2020 and uh, last December need to be fully enforced. Otherwise, it will, not, it will be just symbolic uh, response as opposed to substantive, uh, meaningful response. And one other thing that I think um, the Biden administration tried to do last year, kind of disappeared now, is a multilateral approach to the uh, uh, China issue. Uh, Europeans are coming along, uh, but they're not fully on board. Uh, they need to step up to the plate. Their problem is as big as ours, an economic front, uh, uh, on, on a, a societal front, even in the future of European democracy. A number of people have said, you know, in order to impose these sanctions, to have them be meaningful on Russia, for example, mm -hmm. right? They're almost meaningless without secondary sanctions on China, which is basically enabling yeah. Russia. I, um, I, I have been um, one of those advocates for targeted sanctions. I think uh, the sanctions takes a while to show an effect. But sanction is such an important tool. You know, it has a significant deterrence. And in the, in the matter of, in the case of China, it's more important because to the CCP regime, uh, two things are extremely important. One is the uh, public perception, how it's been, how it is portrayed in public discourse. The other is their economic interest. Both of them are, are so important for them to continue to have a positive image projected uh, on the public discourse, uh, public um, uh, arena, and using the economic power to expand their influence. So when you do this kind of uh, targeted sanction, you genuinely get their attention. Uh, we talked about my being sanctioned. You know, I don't have any economic interests. I don't have a travel plan to China. And yet they did it for a symbolic reason. Um, I'm sure that the others who've been sanctioned in Canada, UK, uh, in e EU, here at home, don't have a specific economic or personal interest. But the others, the entities, that the yesterday there was a report in Financial Times that the Biden administration is going to impose a heavy sanction on the world's largest camera maker, surveillance camera maker, High Vision. Uh, that is huge. Uh, in the United States, in Europe, elsewhere, 
high vision cameras are ubiquitous. Our hospitals, our prisons, uh, in, in one instance, one of the military bases, uh, schools in the United States use high vision camera. Uh, just one country. What does that mean? That means that there, the, this company will not be able to rely on software and hardware supplied by Silicon Valley. So if they cannot continue to do this, uh, it will be a, a huge challenge for them, uh, both technological and investment front. So, so th see, this is the one. And then another example. And I just want to jump in because Hikvision's technology is central to this police state yes. that we've been talking about. And then the, yeah. the reason for the sanctioning mm -hmm. based on the Financial Times report was that um, uh, high visions uh, enabling and facilitating the ongoing human rights abuses and it specifically mentions the Uyghur genocide. So I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, it's long overdue. I hope uh, the other countries, uh, particularly in Europe, still sleeping at switch need to wake up to this. And I don't think that it should be, it, sh it shouldn't take the genocide in, in, uh, against the Uyghurs or upending Hong Kong democracy or Xi Jinping supporting Putin uh, to wake up uh, those uh, individuals in the policy circle in Europe in particular. This is a real thing. This is, uh, this is serious. Even to this day, um, China is, is, you know, there's a long piece published a couple of days ago um, that specifically says um, how China uh, is supporting. And State Department actually put out the fact sheet. They're still engaging in this information campaign, trying to normalize Putin's war crimes. So it's interesting that your book is called No Escape um, because, you know, not only did you lose your father recently, but actually I think it's two, not two weeks ago, your brother was actually attacked viciously um, in Fairfax County, Virginia. Um, and it's really kind of unclear entirely why, right? And it just, I, we have this in the Epoch Times, we have a long piece by Andrew Score about it. Um, and, you know, it just, it certainly makes, it's certainly consistent with the way that the Chinese Communist Party goes after, even in other sovereign nations, basically the people that it views as its enemies, or, or frankly, if you're Chinese, that views that it kind of owns in a way, you know, that's how I view it anyway. Um, yeah, I, that's precisely why I named this book, uh, No Escape, because, uh, of the impression, um, a realization that I've been living with, that the Chinese leadership still think that they own me, uh, own others, even though we have nothing to do with them as far as our rights is concerned, as, well, as far as our allegiances is concerned, as far as our citizenship is concerned. Uh, what my brother experienced is, is a mystery. Uh, why they picked this time that we were grieving for the loss of our father in the holy month of Ramadan in the parking lot of a mosque as my brother was going in trying to attend a funeral service for a friend of ours who also lost a uh, loved one um, around the same time that our dad passed away. And the, the same individual, uh, the same group that are supporting this individual are the group of people who have been uh, spending countless hours of time on social media, at least in the last five, six years, maligning, slandering, uh, bullying uh, uh, establishment uh, Uyghur activists. Uh, if you compare me to others, actually, 
uh, I've been less a target uh, on social media. And uh, just just to be clear, this is a Uyghur group itself. Right? Yes, that's it's a Uyghur group, for, and yeah, that's what yeah. what makes it even more um, uh, disturbing. That um, here we have a group of Uyghur activists uh, who are fighting day in day out to try to stop the genocide uh, and engage with the governments who can make a difference. And yet a group of uh, online activists who have no influence whatsoever and have a terrible messaging, very radical views, uh, trying to trash the people who are doing the right thing. And this has been a norm, like a major distraction. Every single time uh, when a major establishment Uyghur organizations such as the World Uyghur Congress try to do the same something right, just like the Uyghur Tribunal in London, uh, there's always distraction of autonomy versus independence. There's always like a false controversy pops up. Um, I get criticized uh, for not using the platform available for me globally to chant slogan. I'm not a slogan person. Um, and I got criticized. And I, they picked my brother to victimize this. Is, it is happening in the United States of America. Um, who is encouraging uh, or giving uh, the, the courage to this person who can commit this level of brutal crime that almost killed my brother? Uh, his eyes are still being treated. Uh, I believe in the justice system. I believe in the fairness of our uh, law enforcement approach. But at the same time, this damage to my brother could be permanent. Um, and it should not happen. And, and those of us who work on uh, human rights uh, should not be worrying about our safety because we live in a free society. This is our right. This is our constitutional right. We should not be worried about some foreign government trying to intimidate harm uh, us uh, in a free country. And it is a serious security concern that many people share. And then these people that are uh, doing this kind of harm are handful. Um, and again, where do they get the uh, courage? Well, why so do they are so, so bold and how they do this? And why the people who commit these kind of crimes, the same, same type of people always been causing uh, false controversies, distractions, uh, in, in the business of maligning, slandering people who are doing the, who are doing the right thing. Well, so this is what I wanted to comment on. Like, we, as you said, it's a mystery. We don't know, like, what actually happened in this situation. But what I do know is that in every Chinese dissident community uh, that I'm aware of, these so-called agent provocateurs yeah. and spies and so forth enter these communities and disrupt them and create these kinds of animosities. And I've seen this documented multiple times in multiple communities. And that's what it made me think of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 some people think it's a free speech. Uh, causing mental anguish, um, uh, physical harm, imminent threat of physical harm are not free, free speech. Free speech is, is very clear. So sometimes people think that this is a part of somebody's right. It's something that CCP is trying to play us against each other. We should not let that happen. Uh, when you... Um, uh, watch some of the footages coming from uh, Australia these years, uh, in recent years, is very disturbing. Uh, one of the activists who are running for office, mm -hmm. who are very critical of CCP, Drew yeah, yes. he was calling out Xi Jinping and he was attacked in the middle of, uh, on, on the broad daylight in the streets of Sydney. That's Australia. 
What on earth that you cannot call Xi Jinping out or call anyone out? He can call out Scott Morrison. No one will do that to him. But what, what on earth that when he calls out Xi Jinping, he gets attacked like that? I mean, somebody needs to look into this. And, and, and I, think, I think we need to, we need to look at it in a broader. This is just not a harassment. This is a national security threat. I think these people need to woke, wake up. It's a little better in the United States as opposed to UK and Australia, where the libel laws are very relaxed. This is why the Hoover Institute um, published a report uh, uh, a few years ago uh, describing that China has been engaging in uh, corrosive, coercive, and corrupt influence operations around the world. That influence operations also comes with a huge price to ordinary people who are just speaking their mind. Uh, speaking truth to power, advocating human rights and religious freedom around the world. Nuri, this is an excellent place to finish up. Your book, again, is No Escape, The True Story of China's Genocide of the Uyghurs. But as we've discussed, it talks about so much more. It's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you very much for having me on. And I appreciate your team uh, and your network uh, been um, lending voice and providing platform and educating general public about the CCP brutalities and atrocities committed against not only uh, on the weaker population, but the others who are defenseless and voiceless. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Nuri and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. If you haven't subscribed already, you can now try a 14-day free trial and get access to all of our deep dive interviews documentaries, and exclusive content on Epoch TV. From American Thought Leaders to The Larry Elder Show. Just go to ept.ms slash free trial yawn.